Let me start off with a quote again. This one is the Buddha, and he's speaking in a whole section of the Pali Canon, which is the, the canon of Theravada of Buddhism, um, in something called the Sangyutta Nikaya. And he says this, the sage should put an end to the root cause of psychological distortion, the thought I am. Ever mindful, he should train himself to abolish whatever craving he finds in himself. And there's two real thoughts in that, the thought of I am and craving, and we're going to touch on both of those to start with. I am, that's... uh, the big one in many ways. Um, We all have a struggle, don't we? We all have a struggle to be who we are, in some senses to hold ourselves together from falling apart. Um, That's probably the biggest psychological task most of us have in life, is kind of stop from falling apart um, and be an identity and be an individual. It only really works in English, but I often say this, that so if you think of the first person pronoun in English, I, I often if I have a board, write it up on the board, you have the first person pronoun I, doesn't it look terribly lonely? <laughs> you know, it's all sort of singular and stick-like, <laughs> and all on its own. And, and in a sense, that's the crux of the problem. To be individuated in that sense is an enormous struggle to be that individuated I. And I've talked over the last few nights or so, I've talked about roles and identities and how we're searching for an identity. Um, Western beings in many ways are beings in search of identities. We're searching for that ever-receding sense of identity which we're grasping after and actually very rarely becomes unless we take on the kind of false perception of a role. We inhabit a role, we play it. Unfortunately, we don't know we're playing a lot of the time and we take it terribly seriously. Um, We don't know that we're playing that role and all the things I talked about the other night, we don't know they're going to be stripped away from us, these roles either. So being the self is a very lonely business. Um, The I am is a very alienating idea. Um, It cuts us off from others. The whole purpose of really Buddhist practice, both in its non-Mahayana and Mahayana form, for those who are not aware of the distinction between those two, non-Mahayana Buddhism is the Buddhism that generally now we only see really present in places like Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, and a little bit in Cambodia. Whereas Mahayana Buddhism was that which was prolific originally in northern India, travelled into China, Japan, Tibet, Korea, and we still see pockets of that present even in those countries like China and Tibet, which have become communist. We still see pockets of that. But the dominating thought behind all of the practice, both Mahayana and non-Mahayana, was to, in a sense, move out into the world to move away from the sense of self-grasping, the sense of obscuration of the other by the self, by making this move into the world, by actually stepping out, becoming, I could use lots of metaphors here, 
becoming, I think he used this the other night, a cleared space for the other to manifest. Unfortunately, most of us live in a junk shop, so there's no cleared space for the other to manifest. You know, we're, we're there with all our kind of mental junk just there. And even the facets of beauty which are there within us are obscured by the junk. You know, it's, it's a bit like having a wonderful collection of artifacts, very beautiful artifacts, and putting them all in one room. <laughs> and you don't see the beauty of any of them. And so it's trying to create clearness and space and openness for what is beautiful to manifest. The I itself, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about not-self here. The I that we grasp so strongly after is, in a sense, always receding. We never quite get there. I was always struck years ago, um, and in fact I sent it to a friend of mine called Stanley, um, because it was a little card that was said that Stanley went to the Himalaya to find his real self. And it had a picture of this guy scaling the Himalaya with a pack on his back. And at the top of the Himalayan mountain was this guy in a pinstripe suit with a little briefcase who looked exactly like him climbing up the mountain. <laughs> so he went off to find his real self. You know, so it's, it's, it's something in some senses which is a mythology, trying to find what is our real self. Because that always sme- smacks of an essentialism of something that is really, really there. Um, you know, if we look hard enough, we'll find, we'll find this thing which is really there, which is our real self. The Buddha didn't think there was such a thing. He didn't think there was a real self, i.e. an immutable essence within us at all. What he saw in his analysis when he broke things down, uh, what he saw was a whole set of processes uh, and that is all we are, as a set of fluctuating processes. The processes can be tuned in a way so that they're wholesome and move out in the world, or they can be detuned with lots of static um, so that they're closed in on themselves and you know, cut off from the world with nothing really getting out there. And so we have the image of either moving out into the world or being stuck in ourselves. And you've only got to think of the way that we live, not so much here, but particularly the majority of people living in cities. There's no more alienated a place than cities. You know, when you have masses and masses of people who are supposedly together, millions, if you think of somewhere like London or one of the capital cities, yet all feeling so lonely. I mean, this is one of the big problems of the modern age, is loneliness. Um, The German philosopher Heidegger had a very good reflection about this. He said the only real existential meaning of loneliness was that it indicated that we should be together. Yeah. You know, that was the actual meaning of loneliness. If you felt lonely, it actually indicated the real fundamental state is one of being together, being with others. And that is the task. When we have this notion of the self it cuts us off. And what I'm talking about here is not a notion of a fluctuating, moving, processive self, but a self which is nailed down. The Buddha uses a very stark image, and I might have given this to you the other night, I can't remember, but it's the image of a dog tied to a post. 
running round and round the post. And that is the image of the self that we have. That we are nailed to this post, running round and round and round it. And perhaps I'll just explore this a little further, because in a sense, that's what we're doing. All we're seeing is our own neuroses. All we're seeing is within ourselves. The poet, who you've probably gathered, is one of my favourite poets, um, who I keep mentioning, I often keep quoting as well, Rilke, has a wonderful idea about this, and something called the Duino Elegies, which he wrote, which is a whole set of elegies, there's actually ten of them. And in the eighth elegy, he talks about the human animal being a very peculiar animal. He says it's the only animal that's turned round looking into itself. All other animals look out onto the open. It's only the human animal that's turned around from a very, very young age looking into itself. In a sense, that is the problem. We look into ourselves. The very root meaning, as I gave you the other night, of the term compassion, you know, in its original form in Sanskrit, karuna, means to look outwards. As you can see, that's a direct you know, contradiction of the idea of being turned inwards, turned inwards in self-obsession. So this is to turn outwards, to move outwards into the world. And actually, my word, there's others out there. There's actually some other people out there. There's other beings. And that's almost the, the, um, the thing that we discover the moment we make the step, the tentative step, into the open, into the, you know, the lack of self-obsession that we normally have, the self-obsession that we're rooted to, this running round and round and round the same post. I often joke, again, it's, it's useful, actually, because the Western world at the moment is still, in a sense, immersed in therapies and psychoanalysis and everything else. There's a French psychoanalyst, Jacques Lacan, um, who actually makes a very good point. He says that the ego, which is really, I suppose, the modern Western world for the self, is a foreign implant. You know, it's something that gets planted in us, or the idea of it gets planted in us at a very, very early age. Um, he said this generally comes around by what he calls mirroring, either the confrontation with an actual mirror or the mirroring behaviour of a parent, obviously mostly the mother, but obviously can be others as well, you know, the father or anybody who could be the surrogate parent, who mirrors the child, bringing it into a wholeness, particularly the very young baby, that it doesn't possess. You know? And actually, he says, we're condemned to search for our little lost object, which our little lost object is the idea of ourselves as a unity, something which isn't fragmented, something which is kind of whole and unified. And to make his point, and I think this is really quite humorous, uh, he, to make his point, he makes a joke, because he actually says basically that apes are more intelligent than humans. Um, and the reason he does this, he says, if you ever hand a mirror to an ape, what does it do? Well, it picks up the mirror, and it looks at it, and it goes... <laughs> looks behind it, and loses all interest after that. It's got no interest in what's there in the mirror. What happens to a human when you hand a human a mirror? <laughs> and you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> Forever. <laughs> This is the myth of Narcissus again. <laughs> you know, we're literally drowning the vision of ourselves. And when we have this self which is obfuscating our vision, literally blocked in front of our vision, 
How can we see others? How can we actually make that movement out into love? How can we make that movement out into genuine seeing with actually always seeing is ourselves? As I was indicating the other night, part of the problem of human relationships, I'm not saying the only problem, but part of the problem often in human relationships is we're always searching for an other who is ourselves. I mean, even this goes back to Plato and the myth in Plato. Basically, you know, the idea of the other half comes from Plato and one of the mythologies in Plato. There's lots and lots of halves running around looking for each other. <laughs> you know, and it's the idea of com- complementarity, um, but almost kind of mirroring as well, that the two halves mirror each other in a symmetrical way. Um, and in a sense, as you can see, that mythology has grown very much in the West, how we always look for something to be reflected back. You know, I'm not saying anything I haven't said already. Something to be reflected back from the other. So the problem becomes the self. Now, part of the insight meditation tradition, not the metta tradition, although I'm going to qualify this in a second, part of the insight meditation tradition is to actually have an insight into the idea that there is not self. Now, this is not an intellectual comprehension. Let me get this quite, quite clear. I think all of us can, in a way, possibly understand, and perhaps I'll run through it very briefly again in a second, all understand intellectually, because it's not that difficult, what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about not-self, and then just behave completely the way we do, just ordinarily, you know, being just as rotten as we usually are. Um, we can go out with an understanding of not-self. Oh, yeah, the Buddha says not-self. Okay, let's uh, grasp this and reject that and have this and do all the things that we kind of ordinarily do. In other words, it doesn't touch us. You know, it doesn't come into an emotional understanding. The doctrine of not-self. I mean, doctrine. In fact, it's a bit doctrine. You know, it almost says, okay, it's just an intellectual understanding, kind of intellectual exercise. That is not how the Buddha saw it. It was not an intellectual exercise. The Buddha never saw anything as being an intellectual exercise at all. In fact, his very words to anybody was ehipasaka, which actually in Pali means come and see. In other words, come and inquire into it for yourself. And the actual word pasaka, to see, was actually the main thing. To see for yourself, to appropriate it for yourself. A great Tibetan teacher always made this point whenever he was talking about any so-called intellectual doctrine of which you know, we can shuffle off and kind of shuffle off onto the shelf and say that's merely an intellectual doctrine and in this particular text I always remember I was sitting in the monastery one time reading this text and it was very dense and very kind of heavily argued and, that, and it was a kind of 14th century text and I get to the end of it and um, just the author Tsongkhapa who's uh, one of the great founders of Tibetan Buddhism Tsongkhapa says um, if you've got the end of this text and the hairs on the back of your neck haven't stood up, you haven't understood it. <laughs> and I think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about an emotional, embodied understanding of something, not something which is merely intellectual. So the doctrine of not-self, which I'm talking about, and hopefully you can understand some of the practical consequences of it, is not merely a doctrine. It's something which is really to be perceived in action. You know? The Buddha often reiterates, this is not me, this is not mine. He goes through this again, this is not me, this is not mine. Everything that arises, this is not me, this is not mine. Yeah. 
to really try and bring home to us the fact that we're always grasping after something as being ourselves, and it's not. It's a process. It arises and it passes away. All of those thoughts which you go, you know, your most private thoughts, your anxieties and your fears and everything else, which you really deeply feel you, the Buddha's going, not me, not mine. You know, that really puts it in perspective, doesn't it, when you're saying that? Because we really do attach ourselves to those thoughts, believing they're us. You know, the thoughts of depression, the thoughts of elation, the thoughts of this, the thoughts of that, the grasping after the things that we have. You know, just the possessions that we have. You know, not me, not mine. And that really brings it home. If one starts to investigate this notion of not-self through really beginning to see that, not me, not mine, all the time, everything is arising. Nothing is establishing as, in a sense, as self. Not in the strong sense of self. All those roles, not me. certainly not mine all of the things that we have definitely not me definitely not mine all of those thoughts which are as I'm kind of indicating to you uh, we believe to be our innermost private possessions because that's often how we see our thoughts isn't it little possessions that we have even if they're really rotten ones you still want to hold on to them because they're yours (laughs) not me not mine that's what the Buddha is saying and it kind of it's a bit like a pin going into the bubble of ego, egotism. The bubble that you know, become, we spend most of our time going, <laughs> blowing up the bubble of egotism. Even if that egotism is attached to misery. You know, and the Buddha's coming along and going, pop, to that bubble. Because it's not you. None of it is. We think it's all terribly personal. And it's not. <laughs> Then the Buddha is trying to actually show us the way things are, but not, I repeat, not as articles of belief. What he's actually encouraging you to do is to see it in action. So the whole process, the whole so-called insight meditation tradition is to see it in action. Dharma in action, not Dharma in theory. Dharma is not a theory. It's an actual thing that you can see. If there is a way that things are, And that's what the Buddha is saying that he's teaching. If there is a way things are, then they can be discerned, they can be seen. They're empirically verifiable. And that is what the Buddha is encouraging us to do. So this doctrine of not-self is not really a doctrine at all. It's something that can be perceived in action. And remember, he takes this idea of the unitariness, this solitariness of the I, you know, in English. It doesn't work in any other languages, actually. It's only in English that we have the I, first-person pronoun. You know, all the other languages have kind of other compounds. Um, but in English, we have this I. But he's taking this idea of the unitariness of it and breaking it down. And it gets broken down further and further and further. Yeah. Scattered out into multiple processes. Um, now that, I must emphasize to you, does not mean, as I so sillily see written sometimes, in a way that you don't exist. Of course you exist. What the Buddha is trying to get clear to you is the way that you exist. How you are, not what you are. That is his question. Remember that distinction I made the other night about how, you know, what is type questions and how is? The Buddha is trying to show how you are in this world. 
how you actually are, not the way you would like yourself to be, the way that you can fantasize. And actually he's talking about the notion of a unitary self, the notion of an ego, and everything else as being really fantasies that we live. And actually they're very miserable fantasies a lot of the time because they're fantasies which cut us off from others. They're fantasies which involve grasping, greed, craving, desire, lust, all of these things as a result of this ego aggrandizement, building up, inflating the ego itself. So what we're engaged in is a deflationary process, actually deflating the ego, seeing it for what it is, nothing other than this kind of foreign implant that's been planted as a condition into our psyche at a very, very early stage in our development. And actually getting clear about what's going on until we can get that clarity about what's going on, then in a way, we can't begin to move into this love relationship that we've been talking about in a really positive way. Now, rather than just kind of pondering the idea of not-self, and I would say I'll run briefly through it again just to remind you. The Buddha is also think, indicating that we can approach it through love and compassion in itself. Because the very act of trying to love, even if it's, you know, in a sense, is not real at this stage, not actual in this stage, a sense of trying to develop metta loving kindness, to try to develop compassion, try to develop an ukampa. what I'm calling empathy, to try and develop those is already to take one step outside of yourself. And all of the virtues that the Buddha recommends that we practice are deflationary virtues. Greed is counteracted by generosity. Hence the reason why in Buddhist culture generosity is such a huge thing. To engage in generosity is already somehow even if it's only in a minute sense, to reduce the sense of self-grasping, of holding on to something. Try giving away something, you know, instead of holding on to it. Most of the time we're holding on desperately, the Buddha is recommending giving. Now, of course, in terms of our greed and our grasping and everything else, um, it doesn't have to be that you're grasping after a tremendous range of things. It can actually be a very small number of things. Um, there are often stories told in the tradition about, of course, people, and there's a very famous one in the Tibetan tradition, of um, somebody who's a very wealthy man who gives away everything to ordain as a monk. Um, and in ordaining as a monk, what he gets, of course, is the requisites that a monk always possesses, which are a robe, a set of robes, and a few other possessions, and a begging bowl. And he's given away all of his possessions, but he gets really angry when somebody steals his begging bowl. <laughs> you know, because that is actually... Um, the way that we devolve perhaps our grasping onto fewer and fewer things, but we're still grasping. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not the quantity necessarily of possessions, although they can be an encumbrance in themselves, but often the attitude of mind that we have with what we have. So craving and grasping are very much attached to the notion of self. And within the traditions, the reason for this inquiry into the self either through love or through insight, is to actually reduce this sense of grasping, to let go, to learn to let go. I'm going to now come back to 
dependent origination a little bit and follow it through just a little bit further. I kind of gave you a little bit last night right at the end in terms of the craving attachment complex, but I didn't show you how we got there. You know, remember that we have the notion of ignorance, which is the founder, is, is the font, if you like, of all of the sankharas, all of the formations, all of the unwholesome formations, and sometimes wholesome formations that we're engaged in. Remember, karmic formations, it makes a bit sound grandiose, doesn't it? Just think habits. Yeah. Nothing else. You, know, you are just a bunch of habits. You know, some of them good, and a lot of them bad. You know, let's put no too fine, not too fine a point on it. That really is what it's about. And as long as there are those bad habits, or let's put it much more the way the Buddha does, unwholesome habits, what he calls akusala habits, as long as they're there, they're in a sense is unfinished business. Always something carrying over. Always something psychologically carrying over into the next moment. So in other words, instead of arriving in the next moment of our life, free of baggage... We don't. We come with this great kind of sack full of stuff that we're carrying into the next moment, which is all of our psychological dispositions. You know, I call it proclivities. Ways of behaving. Ways of thinking. Ways of wanting to do things. I mean, just think how deeply entrenched they are. I mean, i just let you ponder that for a second. Because they are so, so deeply entrenched in us. You know, in fact, as I pointed out to you the other night, <laughs> and I tried to do it jokingly, but um, of course, we think the habits are us. You know, you see that thing about in London and, and all around the country: toys are us, well, habits are us. <laughs> Here, you know, we think they are us, and so deeply do we think they are us that when somebody or you know, something challenges that habit, that habitual thing you kind of push back on yourself. You, know, you get very defensive. Certainly if somebody challenges it, you get extremely defensive because you think that's you. you know, they're really attacking you. No, it's not. It's a habit. We, don't, we can kind of think, well, can't, well, I just have this habit, this funny little thing that kind of arrives and I do things this way, but uh, so what? We don't think like that. We go, that's the way I am. <laughs> you know? Even if we don't say it, even if we don't verbalise it, that is actually unconsciously the attachment we have to to those habitual formations that they are us and then we have the arising of consciousness so consciousness arises in dependence on the sankharas and the sankharas arise in dependence on avidya and all of the contents and I won't go into it again of what avidya is in other words ignorance gives rise to the sankharas to the habits and the habits give rise to consciousness and consciousness is consciousness of those habits. I mean, I've often pondered this, um, particularly in relation to the traditional view of rebirth. Um, a child doesn't seem to be born as a blank slate. You know, it seems to be born with habits and dispositions already. You know, in other words, kind of proclivities already, which are within it. And some of those can obviously possibly be genetic, and I have no doubt about that, and I don't think if the Buddha was living in a modern world, he would probably quarrel with that either. But some of them certainly seem to be carried over somehow. Something seems to be there. There's no child who's a perfectly blank slate who's just kind of indoctrinated. They have preferences from a very, very early age, even if they are twins. You know. 
So, you know, perhaps there's something to this, the idea that something's carrying over, but I wouldn't want to push that too far. But certainly, psychologically, in the moment, the moment of consciousness that we have in the moment is often of our dispositions. That's our first moment of consciousness. So, as I sit here in this moment, it's often, you know, the dispositions that I have, that I prefer to do this as opposed to that, I prefer to think this as opposed to that, and so on and so forth. And so, that consciousness, in a sense, is replete already with a bunch of bad habits or unwholesome habits that we have. And, of course, that then carries over into the next consciousness moment and then into the next consciousness moment and so on and so forth. It's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy if nothing is done about it. So, in other words, that kind of feeling of deja vu that we often have, which I referred to the other night, is often true in a way. It's not identical. It's not the identical thing that's happening to you, but it's something very similar because you've brought the same sets of dispositions into that moment along the whole stream of consciousness. And so it's giving rise to a similar, dare I say it, miserable condition. Uh, And that's what actually is happening. So we arrive in this moment doing something we were possibly doing 10 years ago, or even 20 years ago, or even further back than that. So... The question is, do we learn? <laughs> you know, are we actually intelligent enough to learn anything from this process? Um, sometimes I think not. Um, I joke. <laughs> we do learn, but we learn very, very slowly. And sometimes it is only such things as tragedies or big issues in our life which really shake things up kind of get hold of you by the scruff of the neck and start shaking you around so much that you begin to see the dispositions that we have, the things that we bring, say, to relationships, for example. Um, that cause the problems that we often seem to keep on repeating. We have this, you know, we have this tendency to keep repeating. You know, I'm probably keep repeating myself over and over again here. You know, so we keep repeating what we do, and that is coming through in consciousness. That also comes through in the patterning of body and mind, which is the next arising out of this. Um, often you'll see this translated. You'll go from ignorance to habits to consciousness, then to so-called mind and body. Now, this is not really mind and body as such. It's the blueprint for mind and body. In other words, setting down what is actually going to manifest later on. So in other words, if you think about it, if you have a whole set of habits which we're conscious sometimes of, of liking, say, particularly unwholesome foods, um, then they're going to give rise to a certain patterning of mind and body and give rise to certain dispositions in the mind and body as well. So that's all laid down at this stage. And so consciousness and mind and body blueprint are interacting. And I hope this is clear We're not talking about an actual mind and body, we're talking about the blueprint of mind and body as laid down, actually, from moment to moment. In other words, we perpetuate, don't we? Often bad habits, which are there in consciousness. Sometimes we're conscious of them, but we don't do anything about them. I'm conscious of, for example, having too much sugar, too much salt, things like that. You don't do anything about it. So obviously it has an effect on mind and body. And it's going to give rise to something later on in the future. You know, perhaps problems in the future. So mind and body is there. Because it's mind and body, then it's going to condition the six senses, which is the next arising. 
something in, in Pali called Sariyatana, which actually is the sense spheres. And there's six in Buddhist thought, um, because we have the five that we normally recognize, you know, obviously the eye sense and the ear sense and nose sense, the tongue, touch, and so on and so forth. But there's also mental sensing, too. We sense the mental sphere, the sphere of what's going on in the mind. And so we kind of touch mental objects, just as we touch physical objects when we palpate them. We also you know, touch, in a sense, visible objects through the eye, audible objects through the ear, and we equally so touch mental objects through the mind. And so we have those six senses, and they come into contact with things. And it's, you know, contact is what we actually have. We have automatic contact with visible things, with audible things, with gustable things, with taste, and with tangible things, with touch. And so there's this immediacy of contact. You know, we always have contact, even in sensory deprivation chambers. You know, in Buddhist thought, we'll always have contact with the mental stuff, even if we're not contacting the physical stuff and the audible stuff. So we're always in that sense of contacting something. Now you might think that's all kind of fairly mundane, <laughs> you know, from consciousness down to, to touch. Things start to go awry next, because when we touch something, in other words, when we have contact with it, it gives rise to Vedana, feeling. Our feeling is three types. Like, dislike, neither like nor dislike. Yeah. It's automatic. There's not a lot we can do about it. You know, the moment I come in contact with something, the moment I touch this, for example, there's either the feeling of like, dislike, or neither like nor dislike. If I stick my hand on a hot plate... You know, I'm not going to experience it as pleasant unless I'm a masochist. <laughs> you know, it becomes automatically, I pull my hand away because I feel it as unpleasant. You know, if I put my hand on a kind of nice velvet cushion or something, I might experience that as pleasant. And so in a sense, we don't have volition over what we experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. We don't actually have any volition over that. The next bit we have volition over, though, and this is getting into where I kind of finished off last night, which is the craving attachment complex. Because it says out of Vedana, and you can see this, actually you can see this in meditative practice, not necessarily in practice we're doing, but you can see this in certainly in Vipassana practice. You can see the whole process, if you're acute enough. The next thing that arises is craving out of that. Now you might think that's funny because we've got like, dislike and neither. You can obviously see how we crave what we like. But actually the Buddha is really laying his stall out and saying actually the most part we're craving to avoid mostly that which we dislike. You know, that's what we're craving to avoid. You know, so actually the craving to avoid is just as the great as the craving to have. And I would say, I'd kind of push this back onto you a second and say, think about your own lives. Think of the strategies that we have for avoidance of the unpleasant, or what you perceive, and here is in the perception, of the unpleasant. You, know, you will go almost to any ends to avoid it. 
I mean, this is really the stuff of crossing the street to avoid the person you don't like. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, but we'll go through the vast kind of machinations to try and avoid that which we dislike. So a lot of craving is actually that. This is almost like, I mean, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Freud's pleasure principle that he laid out. Actually, Freud's pleasure principle isn't about pleasure at all. It's about the avoidance of pain. You know, that's the pleasure principle. Yeah. And it's very similar to the Buddhist thought. And actually, the vast bulk of craving is the craving to avoid. But then, of course, there is sensory desire. And needless to say, and I did, go, I did touch this very, very briefly a couple of nights ago, there are actually three forms of craving. It's not just one. There are three forms of craving. There is something which is known as kamatanha, which is the craving for sensual things. It's sense desire. We touched on it last night in the hindrances. It's the craving for all those goodies that are around you. Um, it also involves things like sexuality and sensual indulgence and all of the things that we are actually really good at in the West. <laughs> if you want to know about sensual desire, we've only got to look around the Western world and we're really good at it you know, in general. Um, there's not a lot of sensory deprivation going on. There's a lot of sensory desire. And actually, this is another way of actually trying to fill up the vacuum. You know? In our search for identity that I've talked about so much, in our sense of trying to be something or someone, to have a self, you know, to have this sense of identity, I think actually most of us perhaps, and I do say perhaps because, again, it's a generalisation, perhaps perceive that even if we're engaged in that, there's somehow a vacuity there. That we can't actually get this thing. So what do I do? I've got a kind of hole there within me, a vacuum. Well, I try to fill it up. I try to fill it up as much as possible with things, sensual desires, eroticism. All sorts of ways and strategies we have of trying to fill up the sense of lack that we have. We'll go out and we'll literally track down others to try and go, there you are, fill me up. (laughs) And I'm kind of saying that jokingly. But, you know, there's almost that demand on the other to satisfy you, to make me happy. That's one of the biggest things, make me happy. Yeah, I can't do it for myself. <laughs> Somebody else do it for me. <laughs> yeah, so there's that expectation that we place on others to, to do something for us. Um, and that is all about this vacuity, this hole that we often experience in ourselves. It might only be you know, perceived as being kind of minuscule. Um, but as long as it's there, it kind of pursues us or makes us pursue, I would say, sensual objects, objects to try and make us happy in some ways. And sensual gratification, as you know, is endless. And that is the whole point that the Buddha is making when he identifies it as the being the immediate cause of dukkha. The immediate cause of dukkha, of course, is, well, it's never going to be satisfied. You know, if I get the thing I really wanted, if I have the person I want, you know, if I'm with the person I want, I should say, if I get that, then how long does it make me happy? Yeah, and I'm using that word very loosely. 
well, you know, we can probably judge it on the couple of minutes, possibly. Um, because it's often about the, the getting it, the, the striving for it. And this is why the Buddha terms it an endless thirst. Just by its very nature, it's never satisfied. And I'm sure we've all had these mythologies, and I referred again, I'm touching on things and just deepening them a little. That I referred the other night to the way that, for example, we will say, if only I had, if only I had, if only I had. And if you look back over your life, you've probably got a series of, you know, a whole list of stuff that if only I've had, and when you've got them, you're then on to the next thing. And then on to the next thing, and then to the next thing. And the Buddha is saying this is incapable of satisfaction. Desire has no terminus at all. And if it is terminus, if it does have some kind of degree of terminus, it's very unstable. This is why um, when relationships are not based on what I call real openness and real love, then again, they're very tenuous. They so easily drop apart. So that's Kamatanha, that's the most obvious form. Kama, by the way, is, is exactly as in Kama Sutra, if you know that term, the Kama Sutra. You know, Kama was a big thing in Indian society, so the Buddha was picking up on it. You know, the Kama Sutra out and laid out the ways that the practical Brahmin man could take his pleasures in society. You know, that's what it was. So it wasn't about sexuality. It was the, way, the way you could take your pleasures in society and not become defiled because of this notion of purity that they had within it. It was about the Brahmin about town, basically. It was a handbook for the Brahmin about town. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's probably the equivalent of, kind of the men's magazines that you see these days. <laughs> In ancient India. <laughs> but actually, joking aside, <laughs> then we come on to other forms of tanha as well. Craving, thirst... Um, the first one, I'll probably finish off on these tonight. First one is what's known as Bawa Tanha. Bawa Tanha is the craving to be. Jokingly, I always say this is you on a good day. On a good day, you feel like you want to be. <laughs> yeah, this is what gets you out of bed in the morning. <laughs> I want to be, because I feel so good, I want to be me forever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's that idea of wanting something to continue. Now, obviously, the major form, again, I'm joking about it, trying to make a serious point, but the, the major part of Bawatanha, the major part of it is the idea that you want something of yourself to continue over in some form. Now, that may take the full form of some of the religious doctrines that we see that were present in the Buddha's India, but also are present in the monotheistic religions. The idea of a, a kind of soul that finds its way, which is inviolable, which will find its way to kind of some heavenly abode or paradise if it's Islam. You know, it's this idea of this inviolable thing that will find some abode in some form. <clears throat> that idea goes back to ancient India, goes back to ancient Greeks as well, so it's, it wasn't a new idea. It wasn't something that simply arose with monotheistic religions. <clears throat> but the Buddha obviously was talking about something else in his doctrine of not-self. So even this idea of Bhavatana, the idea of something going over, you know, was based on the idea of a false conception of what the self actually was when you actually wanted something to continue over in this way, inviolably. Now, that's obviously the main manifestation of it, but there are actually much, much more subtle manifestations of this idea. 
you know, the idea of you wanting to continue via your good works and the conceit that goes with that. Wanting to live your life vicariously, perhaps through your children. And something of me is continuing over in my children. Um, through my endowment. I mean, there's so many university chairs at the university where I work a lot of the time um, that are named after people. <laughs> you know, have been dead for a hundred years. Because yeah, something has continued over. <laughs> Now, it's this idea of wanting something to continue over. So I say, really, in its extreme form, it's you on a good day when you feel like you just want to go on. That's the good news. Unfortunately, I come to the bad news now, because there's verbawatana, which is you on a bad day. Yeah. And on the bad day, this is the day when you pull the covers up over your head. Yeah. You don't want to get out of bed. There's a total loss of connection with the world, you know, the, the erotic sensation with the world, the interest in the world is gone. This, this is Vibhava Tanha. Um, seriously though, it's much more manifest in its very serious component of something like suicidal tendencies. The craving not to be at all. That's its most strongest manifestation. You know, I do not want to be. You know, again, coming perhaps down to that problem of what a struggle it is to be this individual in the world. On a good day, you can feel, oh yeah, great, I'll go on. Yeah, this is, you know, kind of go on with this I, 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 me, me. You know. On a bad day, you just don't want to know. You see this sometimes in the manifestations of illness. You know, think of the times when you have a really bad dose of flu. You'll see the Bawatanha in action. You just don't want to be, oh, I don't want to get out of bed, I don't want to think, I don't want to read, I don't want to do anything. Kind of a complete loss of libido that's involved in that. The you know, libidinal attitude towards the world is gone. So Vibhavatanha is that craving not to be. Both of them, Bhavatanha, Vibhavatanha, based on false conceptions of the self. One attempts to perpetuate perhaps something which isn't there because there's a process. The other attempts to destroy in its, main, in its grossest manifestation something which isn't really there either. So they're both based on false conceptions of the self. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. Not on one day do I have Vibhavatana and another day, I kind of put it that way, but you know, actually in reality, I, I wax and wane. We all wax and wane, perhaps between these existential moods. We're caught up in sensual desire, sensual gratification, that's particularly tied often to the kind of libidinal attitude that you see in you know, Bhavatana, wanting to continue, you know, wanting something to go on, wanting to perpetuate the moment, you know, this peak moment I'm having, you know, whatever it is, and you want to kind of perpetuate it. And, but then we can kind of fall. This is, again, the elation and depression that I talked about in relationship to, remember, the five hindrances. You know, the excitement, depression mode that we get into. And actually, often sometimes, I think I mentioned this again very briefly the other night, sometimes, you know, sometimes the desire not to be will manifest as something like drug abuse, alcohol abuse, you know, overindulgence in sexuality, the desire to lose yourself, to blot yourself out. Unfortunately, of course, there's always the coming down, always coming back to the same point. So I hope you get the news that craving is not a good idea. 
It's not a good, it's not a good place to be, yeah, from the Buddha's point of view. Um, because eventually it's going to lead to almost, well, not eventually, immediately it leads to attachment. Yeah, we crave and we get attached. We hold on, actually. The word upadana in Sanskrit and Pali also has the idea of a clenched fist, the holding on to something, not letting it go. Um, Actually, in the Tibetan depictions of this, when you see the little illustrations that go with the... Um, trying to describe this pictorially, you find a monkey holding, grasping after fruit, holding onto it, like my monkey trap. Remember I finished last night? Just like that. We're holding on. Out of this craving attachment complex, of course, is the perpetuation of the problem. And really, that simple solution I gave you last night is only... If only one could let go, then you would be free. So it's the learning to let go that is the issue. And that is the burning issue for all of us, is learning to let go. So it means learning to let go in a way of all of the mental stuff and the physical stuff, in a sense, living with it in a very different way. Even if we possess things, perhaps to come into a different relationship with them, Perhaps not the relationship of possessor, I, me, mine, which we have, but rather not me, not mine, at all. Yeah. That I indicated last night in that little idea that Tibetans have, you know, when you have something, it's not yours, it's ransom to you. That is all. You don't buy it, they, you pay a ransom fee. Moving from that into... Yeah, the mental stuff that we possess, that we think is ours, the habits, the formations that we hold so tenaciously too, if we can but let them go, we see a glimpse of freedom. I don't know if you've ever been, there's been an experience of yours. On those odd occasions when we've had a habit, not even sometimes a destructive habit, can be a destructive habit, but you know, even if it's just a little thing, that we've dealt with, we've let go, we've actually changed it, we've moved in. There's this tremendous feeling of freedom. Actually, who is controlling who? The habit generally, I mean all habits from the most innocuous to the really big habits, all of those are controlling you, you are not controlling them. So in a sense we're kind of marionettes, puppets, to the habits that we have, being jerked around on strings most of the time, you know, until we get what we want. You know, and that is simply habitual craving. And there is no freedom in that, is what the Buddha is saying. But when you let go of one, or two, or three, then there is this tremendous elation of the freedom, the space, the openness into which you can suddenly be, rather than being controlled. So for all of us, and perhaps I'll finish off on that very thought, for all of us perhaps the question is, do you want to be free of habit? In other words, to be free of being controlled. Because there is no freedom there. There's again a poem which I often refer to, which is of a panther. A panther in a cage. And the panther in the cage is pacing up and down in this poem. Occasionally it gets the glimpse of freedom. 
just occasionally through the bars of the cage. That's us. We're pacing our cages. And the cage is a cage of habit. And occasionally, just occasionally, when the thought occurs, it might rise up in the mind of freedom. Freedom from that habit. And what the Buddha is saying, build on that. When you see that glimpse of freedom, know that you can be free from it. But it takes effort and it takes work. And it takes love as well. I'm going to finish there. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's do as we usually do, is open it up for any points that people want to raise or any questions. By the way, they don't have to be questions. It can just be you, know, you opening up for something you want to say. Uh, yeah, I've got a point. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of basic one. Because um, I've been struggling the last two days to try to find um, out if uh, was um, worthy or not to put my, the practice in my life daily. And um, I think that today, after... Two days of kind of either kind of middle retreat crisis. So <laughs> I realized that uh, yeah, there is a point. And uh, whereas before I was thinking that um, I was perceiving retreats as kind of like the stepping stones, mm. which uh, were to do all the kind of dirty, dirty works and mm-hmm. work, and then go back to my life with my kind of um, baggage of really nice things to to look at and, and mm. think about. Now I understood that uh, without a daily practice, it's not possible to connect the kind of bug that you pick up from one retreat and the other. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes perfect sense. And um, it came kind of like a kind of sort of little awakening, but reason. Yes. Um, so it's really, it's really nice. It's a really nice feeling. A bit scary, but really nice. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but there is still something that uh, is kind of, um, um, I can't really fully understand, which is how to put um, the Dharma as a style of life, with, because I think that that's what it is, it's a proper style of life, mm-hmm. and how to conci- conciliate it, how to make it going along uh, with things like uh, I don't know, for example, something I'm, I'm thinking a lot, uh, I've been thinking a lot lately, how to, to put it together with um, find a, a job where I can be... Okay, there is an eye in the middle, but I can't avoid by thinking, okay, I, I, I'm in this society, I need to work, I have a job, I have to do like eight, ten hours per day, five days per week. I mean, I want something I can be kind of... Um, you know, mm-hmm. kind of happy within. Or, for example, um, I don't have much money and um, personally go around the bike. If my bike gets stolen, mm-hmm. that's it. I mean, it's, I'm kind of in trouble. So yeah. there is a kind of friction in, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds, I'm still thinking that it sounds that to be, I don't know, a good Buddhist, <laughs> to be on a, on a, on a mountain and <laughs> you know, really to be well, I, I, think, I think my immediate response is that you don't have to do it all at once. You know, the, the tendency is to want to do everything at once. And the thing is, it's kind of gradual implementation. What I, what I, see, what I see the implementation of the Buddhist path in ordinary life... I mean, one doesn't even have to call it Buddhist. I mean, I'm going to just use that as kind of shorthand for the sorts of things we've been talking about. 
if you want to implement these, the sorts of things we've been examining and, you know, and, and, and practicing in ordinary life, you don't have to do it all in one go because there's going to be lots and lots of friction. It's kind of implementing it as you see. You know, for example, you gave a very good example there, which is, you know, in, in, the, in the Eightfold Path, it talks about right livelihood. Appropriate livelihood, actually, is a better translation. You know, appropriate livelihood means finding a way of earning a living which isn't unethical. You know? So I'm not saying this in your case, but I'm saying if we just took that as an example, if that comes into your sphere of, of, of observance, then you might look very closely at the work that you do, or the work that you're prepared to do, because you want to live ethically in accordance with the idea of earning a living according to right livelihood. You know, and that means obviously discounting the obvious, very certain obvious professions, but can also mean, if one took it seriously enough, perhaps working for a multinational company that's selling arms or investing in armaments or something like that. You know, so it really depends on you to the depths at which you take it. Yeah, but yeah. I'm thinking also about what I, in the end, I would call predispositions. Mm-hmm. For example, I'm a kind of communicative person, I want to work with people, or mm-hmm. I prefer to stay on my own and uh, I want to have a job I can do I don't know, from home. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's... Well, that doesn't sound like a bad idea, you know, that seems like something you can do. And it, you can do it and mould it into a way of, you know, what I'm saying is right livelihood. You can take what you're, what you're calling your disposition is and move it into a way where it becomes ethical. You, know, you can do that, but it requires effort, obviously, and it requires thought to be able to do that. I'm going to joke for a second, because in a way the issue that you've raised is something I think everybody who's at all touched by kind of perhaps the values we've been talking about and the things we've been doing over this week so far is that actually Buddhist thought and practice should come with a government health warning, which is it could seriously alter your life, you know, which is what it's supposed to do. It meant to seriously alter your lives. And that's, you know, that, that is it. If it really touches you, then it begins to alter your life. In a way, it's like having an awareness of something, you can deny that awareness, but in a way it's still there. You can go on with the same things, you can go on with the same habits, you can go on with the same routines, but it's actually, once that awareness is implanted there, it's very difficult to move away from it, almost like it's like aggravation within you. Yeah, I was thinking this kind of switching of a clean energy system. Yeah. So it, it really does, I mean... Buddhist thought and practice touches every dimension of your life. It really should. But you can take it stages by stage. It's part of the problem, I just expressed a, a kind of something I often see in the West. Part of the problem is in the West, we often want, certainly with meditative practice, what I call our cake and eat it. You know, we want to be able to do meditation practice, but usually as a hobby. <laughs> you know, as a distraction from doing all the other stuff that we normally do. <laughs> you know, and so. Even on retreat sometimes, people want to go off and do things which actually are completely inappropriate to being on retreat. Um, not, not very often, but sometimes. But often it manifests as, I, I want to do some meditation, I want to feel good, and I want to feel a bit calmer, and I want to feel this and that, you know, and all the benefits. But I also want to go out and party! <laughs> and do all that stuff. And, and drink lots of alcohol. And, 
and what I'm saying is really in coming to a wise relationship with this, it doesn't mean negating all that, but looking at it closely, seeing sometimes where there's friction. In many ways we don't want to give up. We always feel we're going to miss out on something if we give up. And actually the Buddhist path, very un-PC in the Western world, is actually a renouncer's path. It's a path of renunciation. In other words, renouncing and renouncing, not in the sense of giving up something which is wholesome, but giving up unwholesome things to come to what is important. In that sense, it's a renouncer's path. So we're renouncing things which give us pleasure, and there's no doubt all the things that we do in the modern world often give us great pleasure. But we get attached by pleasure, we get bogged down in it, we want to repeat it, we want to keep doing it, and it takes so much energy out of, it, out of us to keep on doing that stuff. Uh, and really, I suppose, it profits us not in the end. And so if we come to it with wisdom, we can eventually start to relinquish some of that stuff. It doesn't become meaning becoming a bore, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, but it does mean coming into a different relationship with things and with the stuff that we see around us. And coming back to your kind of comment, I wouldn't say it's a question, but a comment about your own life... You know, it's about developing those values gradually into your life, integrating them, see, see where there's friction, see where there's dissonance, and see where you can move, perhaps in terms of your job, in terms of the way you live. Gradually, gradually moving into what I call a more dharmic path, as opposed to an adharmic. An adharmic path is a path which is completely off the dharma. And it's a gradual thing. It's a gradual path. I mean, you can't get away from that. Path of development. Thanks. Any other? Yeah. I've been experiencing metta on different levels, um, and I just want to share one of the changes of level that happened today. Uh, you introduced the neutral person, and I searched around and I found a woman who cleans the floors at the school I teach in and I don't know her very well and yet I see her every day, I don't even know her name. And it was an interesting opportunity but I actually said to myself, you mean I, I'm supposed to waste the whole day on this woman who mops the floors? And I I started up, but that's not Buddhist PC, so immediately I said, bad. Uh, uh, she's just as deserving of your metta as anybody. And I started to do metta towards her in a very patronizing way. Like, yeah, right, she's going to be filled with loving kindness. Give me a break. Uh, uh, or, you know, that, that may she be at ease. My picture was her sitting in front of the TV with a bag of chips. <laughs> and I, I didn't realize that for a while. And I and all, all of a sudden, my arrogance kind of came up. Uh, I mean, I saw my arrogance or my whatever you call it, and I said, wait a minute, maybe maybe she can really be filled with loving kindness more than me. And I, I began to really wish her to be filled with loving kindness and to wish what would it mean for her to be at ease and to be at peace. Mm. And seeing the possibility made me go back 
to the day before where the, the good friend, the person I chose as a good friend yeah. was my son. And I realized how terribly uh, I sold him short as well. Oh, he can't do this. He can't. You know, my 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 wishing for him to have good health was that he stopped smoking. But uh, but there was so much more that I didn't believe that he could do. That all of a sudden I realized that he could also maybe uh, fulfill himself in in so many ways. And then it made me go back to myself mm. and to see how I'd sold myself short while I was wishing myself the phrases or directing the phrases to myself, how I was so limited in my horizons that I was that, that all of a sudden when I when I was able to feel this way towards the neutral person, I could also wish this boundless method toward my son and to myself and to my benefactor. Mm -hmm. And it just got much bigger and much more fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, all I can say is really thank you for that because I'm sure everybody appreciated what you've just said. And I mean, that does show you the way that this practice can shift things if you really, really stick with it. And I think you, I mean, even nine days is a short period of time to do a practice like this. If you really dwell with it and you can see the possibilities of the way that it can develop and increase and become actually what often the texts talk about being boundless meta. You know, it becomes boundless. It becomes outside of the categories we normally want to place it in. I mean, the kind of something some of you might have read um, that always struck me, and, and you know, it was um, in I've, I've not said, it's in Cutler's book, The Art of Happiness, which is his conversations with the Dalai Lama. I don't know if any of you read it. Anybody read this, The Art of Happiness? Because it's a wonderful it's description. It's really just about Dalai Lama talking about happiness and part of his thing is, is actually about that kind of meta recognition, he doesn't use the term meta actually but it's a recognition of others and there's a lot of lovely story in it about when he was travelling in the States and I, forget, I think it was in Nevada somewhere and he was giving a talk there and he was staying in a hotel and he said that um, it said that he observed him, the, the Dalai Lama came down in the morning with his retinue and everything else and he observed this little oriental lady, I forget which nationality she was, but she was probably Korean or something like that, who was standing by the lift. And he went out of his way and he went over and he gave her a great big hug and handshake and that, and did, you know, kind of usual Dalai Lama giggle <laughs> with her. And then went off. And they said, then the next day he observed, he said there were three of them there standing there, and the Dalai Lama went over, and he recognised all three of them, and he gave, say, gave all three of them. He said, by the end of the week, there was the whole of the staff, <laughs> every morning, standing by the, the lift. And he still went out of his way each time to go and recognise everyone, and to greet everyone individually. And in a sense, I see that as being meta in practice. It's that boundlessness which can encompass all sorts of people. You know? And this is really, I think... Probably one of the things that strikes one about a figure like the Dalai Lama is the ability to not just say it, but do it. You know, to, to actually do what he says. And I think this is what makes him such a, a striking individual. I mean, there are many other figures in the field of Buddhism, it's just he's probably one of the most prominent um, who do that. Um, but it's that way and ability of seeing and recognising and encompassing people, um, which we don't often do. I mean, I was thinking very much of your... You know, your, your cleaning lady here, you know, how we don't see these people who are around us and we don't extend that recognition to them and that love 
you know, which is simply humanity in a way. You know, the humanity that we deprive them of by being merely functions in our lives. And that's all. You know, so thank you for your thing. It's kind of that brought that kind of little recognition up for me. And, uh, any, any other... It is unusual. Yeah. It is unusual. I mean, I think it's a very important issue there, which is the one you almost joked about and saying you expected them to be different. I mean, the whole point about the metta practice is probably people won't be different. But the point is still extending metta to them and still wishing that for them. It's like a, a wonderful kind of way of using the mind that's not going to affect change directly because only they can affect their own change. Um, and they might never do that. I mean, some people might still continue to be bogged down in their kind of stuff that they are, but it's still that movement of mind that wishes them well, wishes them happy, wishes them all the things, you know, in the various phrases that you're using. And so we mustn't be too attached because it becomes, again, then about us, doesn't it? When, when the moment I've got you know, the idea, well, I've done all this, I've, I've sat here for nine days wishing you well, and you haven't changed an iota. <laughs> You know, and it becomes um, about us again and, and the kind of investment we've supposedly made in it. And I'm sure it's not as crude as that. But it's kind of relinquishing the idea of any fruit to it. You know, it's still doing it, despite the fact there might be no fruit to it whatsoever. Yeah, and that's, that's not our normal way of thinking, is it? And, and certainly in the Western world, it's not the normal way we think. If we do something, we expect to see a result. Yeah, because we kind of put an investment into it, um, be it time or money or whatever, you expect to see kind of some result out of it. And with this practice and with the compassion practices, well, you might not see a result, 
it still doesn't mean you cease to do it, still cease to generate the whole feeling about it. And I think so, it's kind of a very good point that you're bringing up about that. Um, but it is unusual, I, mean, I must say, it is unusual to find the neutral category the easiest. Um, most people find it very difficult. I remember teaching the long meta retreat, and somebody said on that that when they tried to do the neutral person, they actually discovered they didn't have anybody, they just disliked people or liked them. <laughs> you know, and then she said that was quite an insight, a really enormous insight. She was, in fact, very upset by it. You know, that actually, when it really came down to it, that she, there was nobody in her life that she didn't either like or dislike. Yeah, and that's quite a revelation. So you can see how it's also productive of insight as well. Not necessarily insights that you might like initially, but you can work with them then. Once you've, you know, once you've seen that, um, then you can work with it. You can do something about it. Until you've seen it, you might go through, as she said to me, she said she went through her life thinking that she was a really liberal person. There was an awful lot of people she didn't have strong judgmental qualities about, and this was quite a shock to feel that, that that wasn't the case, actually. So the neutral category is often one of the most difficult. Sometimes it's even more difficult than where we're going to sort of end up you know, with tomorrow, which is the, you know, the person you dislike. You know, sometimes it's actually easier to go through the meta-procedure with that person than it is through the, the, with the, the neutral person. Just reminded me of something I was wondering today. You, you said um, that we can change the phrases um, and make them our own. Yeah. But I was wondering when we then change to the other person, can we then change them again? Yeah, you can keep changing them. Keep changing, keep changing them the way you think appropriate. It's got to. I mean, the reason why I say that it's got to be. It's got to be. I mean, really strongly emphasise that. It's got to be something that resonates with you. Otherwise, the words are just artificial. I mean, in in any sense, even if they're your own phrases, they're certain to a certain degree artificial. But the point is, having something I kind of type out and give to you, and say, kind of keep on repeating that. It can just become really boring and repetitive and mechanical. But at least if you have the creativity, meditation is creativity. Let's never forget that. It's also a degree of creativity as well. Is that how you creatively respond to what's actually coming up, what you're seeing, what you're doing, and with these phrases, keep changing them. If you find certain phrases are more appropriate, say, to the neutral person or to the person you dislike or to yourself, change them accordingly. You know, find something that really works for you. Because you've got to hear those echoes you know, that I talked about. You're not, not just reciting. You're not just a, a speaker. You're a listener as well. We often discount this kind of what I call auditory thing of actually listening. Yeah. We used to have it. You know, we used to have things like listening to the voice of conscience and stuff like that. We don't listen enough, actually. We don't sensitize ourselves in the kind of what I call the auditory sphere enough. And I think we have to really listen to those phrases. I kind of gave you an analogy last night of almost being like music, that they evoke something for you. Just as music does, often, you know, when I talk wordless music, can evoke something for you. Yeah, so please, please keep playing. Please, please keep altering. And, and can, can I bounce back to do matter for myself if I feel that um, I want to do it? Yes. Yes, you can. Yeah. I mean, for, don't hesitate to do that. If you find the practice is getting stuck, rather sticky, you know, rather mechanical at any time, 
then try to ease it off just by going back to yourself. And if that's more difficult, then go back even further and just go back to the breath. And then start to build it up again, from the breath to yourself, to the person of the category we're doing for the day. So again, you've got that freedom to do that, to move. What I find most difficult is, is what um, occurs between the phrases, all the, my distractions, my habits, my thoughts, that I, that I don't want to talk about, mm-hmm. which I find I cannot make friends with. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I find that very hard to actually accept. Well, it's, it's, well, even if you can't make friends with them, you've got to have patience with them because they're there. You know. They're there, I know. Yeah, I mean, they are there. I mean, it's, I mean it's, you say you don't want them. Well, well, you're talking about these, these um, in a sense, this dreadful human condition. You know, we, we need to um, get rid of this and this and this and not, <coughs> not indulge in that. But when they keep coming up, I find it very hard to say, oh, it's okay, you can stay, you can be part of this. Mm. I think you just have to keep going with it because it really is, is it is a process of befriendment. It's in a, or, let's, shall I say, if it's not even befriendment, it's a process of familiarization, of actually knowing, well, here you are again. Yeah, you come back again. There you are. That's yet again. That becomes. It's really difficult then not to, not, not indulge in them. I mean, I, I found myself wanting to go. Yeah. Continue and to explore them and find, for example, why maybe something yeah. and this or not. Mm. I find it very difficult just to drop the whole thing. Yeah, but we're not dropping it as such. You're noting it. You're seeing it. And that's what I say. You know, it's kind of the patience, friendliness. These are all terms that you could use, that you could kind of look at the what's arising with. But then you've got the phrase to return to. Just like, for example, if you're doing breathing meditation, you always have the breath to return to. The thoughts will take you away, and they're not really distractions. Yeah, the breath is always there, just like in this, the phrases can always be there, because that's what you're going through, however you're using them, in whichever way. So having noted them, seeing them, kind of said, okay, you're there, and gently bringing yourself back. Yeah. And it's, it's a process of gradual acceptance, but acceptance that doesn't get caught up with them, and doesn't really reject them. Because it is a process of familiarization. Otherwise, we're going to end up repressing. That's the danger. The two, the two, you know, the two extremes are: we're either going to end up just simply being caught up in a whole stream of thought, or we're going to end up repressing them. So it's far better that you fully acknowledge, even if it's really difficult and quite painful, in the sense you're resistant to it to start with, just acknowledging that they're there, saying, "Okay, you're there." Having seen you, I will now take myself back (laughs) to the breath or to the phrases. And gradually, gradually, as you begin to do this over a prolonged period of time, even if you go out and do breathing meditation from the centre at home, gradually you become to, in a way, become much more friendly towards them. You don't see them as enemies any longer because they're not enemies. They're just thoughts. That's all they are. They're just what we call distractions. But if actually, if you don't get caught up in them, they're not distractions. They're just thoughts. We're not trying to stop them. We're just kind of really saying, okay, you're there, but I'm not going to pay you too much attention. That's all. 
If we pay them too much attention, then we build them up, and then we get caught into chains of thought, and so on and so forth. And so it's a process of gradual befriendment, is what perhaps I would say. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.